If you all were here in person, I would ask if you have, if any of you have been watching the Station Eleven miniseries on HBO. So I guess you can share it in the chat and only go to the host, but but I'll know and I'll check afterward. Or did any of you read the novel by the same title, Station Eleven, by Emily St. John Mandel? I read the book back in 2014 because I, I just kept hearing all these people recommending it and loving it. And the TV series, which is a little over halfway, there are 10 episodes and I think seven have come out so far, is arguably one of those rare, rare cases where the TV show may be even better than the book. Just an incredible cast, incredibly well done and engaging. To avoid any spoilers, I will limit myself to sharing just the basic premise, which you'd get just like reading the back of the book or reading a brief description of the show. And it's related to our New Year's Day theme. Station Eleven is a post-apocalyptic tale set 20 years after a flu pandemic has caused the death of 99% of the world's population. Now, interestingly, the book was published years before anyone had ever heard of this novel coronavirus, COVID-19. And even the miniseries had already filmed two episodes before our current pandemic broke out. Now, I would certainly understand if the prospect of watching or reading about a fictionalized pandemic sounds like the opposite of how you want to spend your free time these days. If so, fair enough. But for what it's worth, Station Eleven skips really quite rapidly over the illness part of the pandemic to explore what is life like 20 years into the future. And one of the most compelling parts is the Traveling Symphony. It's a troupe of actors and musicians who have built a new life for themselves by making a never-ending circuit around Lake Michigan, which for any of you who have been there is very big. It's like a thousand miles around uh, Lake Michigan. And year after year, they continue around and around, stopping at various points to perform. To quote from the novel, the symphony performed music, classical, jazz, orchestral arrangements of pre-collapsed pop songs, and Shakespeare. They'd perform more modern plays sometimes in the first few years, but what was startling, what no one had anticipated, was that audiences seemed to prefer Shakespeare to their other theatrical offerings. People seemed to want what was best about the world. What a fascinating example of what it could look like to construct a meaningful life in the face of very extreme circumstances. After spending a few years securing the basic necessities of life, they chose to lean into the humanities, to the arts, into literature, theater, and music. Along those lines, I'll share just one more passage. This brief excerpt will also give you a sense of Emily St. John Mandel's subtle humor that is also woven throughout the novel. Here's how she describes the humanity and that day-to-day -day reality of this traveling symphony going around and around Lake Michigan. She describes it as this collection of petty jealousies, neuroses and undiagnosed PTSD cases and simmering resentments, living together, traveling together, rehearsing together, performing together, 365 days a year, permanent company, permanent tour. 
But what made it bearable were the friendships, the camaraderie, the music, and the Shakespeare. The moments of transcendent beauty and joy. Maybe some of you have experienced that in the arts or literature. Transcendent beauty and joy when it didn't matter who'd used the last of the rosin on their bow or who anyone had slept with. Although someone, she writes, probably Saeed, had written Sartre, hell is other people, in a pen inside one of the caravans, and someone else had scratched out other people and written flutes. Someone didn't like the flute section. But perhaps the most memorable line in the novel is the motto of the traveling symphony that really gets to the heart of what, what kept them going on this mile after mile, on this circuit, round and round. They called it the wheel, just going round and round the lake, year after year, performing Shakespeare, more than two decades after society has collapsed from a pandemic. Emblazoned on the front of their horse-drawn caravan is this motto, because survival is insufficient because survival is insufficient. For my Trekkies out there, that's also the name of a Star Trek Voyager episode, but that's a, a conversation for another day. I love this idea that survival is insufficient. It's really worth thinking about. Although Shakespeare may or may not be your jam, as we find ourselves on the second day of this new year and still frustratingly embedded in this pandemic, what is it that continues to make life sufficient or more than sufficient for you, for me, for us? Or what may, might make life more than sufficient for you in this new year of 2022? I've been thinking about that motto because survival is insufficient as I've been watching the Station Eleven miniseries over the past few weeks and as I've also been reading a very interesting book titled 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals by the journalist and writer Oliver Berkman. As alluded to by the title 4,000 Weeks, the book starts with a hell of a first sentence. The average human lifespan is absurdly, terrifyingly, insultingly, short. Here in the U.S., at least, the average life expectancy is close to 80. And for we humans who are, will, are or will be around long enough to blow out candles on our 80th birthday cake, we will have lived just over 4,000 weeks. It's kind of weird, at least to me and I think to others, to think about it that way. You live to be 80 years old, and it's only been 4,000 weeks. Shouldn't it be more? Reflecting on our human lifespan through the lens of weeks is an interesting and provocative way to think about it. Often for me, as I suspect has sometimes been the case for many of you, weeks can just seem to, to fly by, one after another. They just keep adding up. It's another way we're just going round and round that wheel. As we all spend our days doing something, and as Annie Dillard has written, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. What we do with this hour and that one, that is what we're doing with our lives. So how shall we spend it? How should we spend our finite weeks upon this earth? Well, another interesting aspect of Berkman's books is that he is making the case that time management as we know it has failed miserably, and he invites us that we should stop pretending otherwise. That's that subtitle of his book, Time Management for Mortals. We have this finite amount of time, so our regular way of time management may not suffice. 
He challenges us to consider that a hyper-focus on productivity is always doomed for at least two reasons. The first reason is that extreme productivity tends to be self-defeating because the more super-efficient you are, it has this ironic effect of generating just more work in response. The more you do, the more people ask you to do. With our endless to-do lists, we can find ourselves reenacting that ancient Greek myth of Sisyphus. Spending all our day rolling that boulder uphill, checking stuff off our to-do list, only to find ourselves back at the bottom the next day, that it's repopulated itself. This dynamic is perhaps most obvious with our email inboxes. Have you ever noticed that the more email you send, the more you get in return? Can I get a witness? I suspect we can online. Berkman's second reason that productivity culture is self-defeating is that there will always be too much to do. I think about our, our uh, mission statement here at UUCF. There is no end to the amount of spiritual growth we can encourage, the amount of beloved community we can build, the amount of social justice and peace we can strive for. There's just no end to it. It's all good. I'm so grateful for it, but it will never end. Instead, Berkman invites us to consider a paradigm shift. What might change if our starting premise is that it is impossible to get everything done? What if we start and construct a life around that? As you've heard me quote before from one of my colleagues, we are saved from perfection. We're never going to get there. It's an impossible standard. We'll never perfectly complete our to-do list because the goalposts keep getting keep getting moved further and farther away. It's like Charlie Brown and Lucy with that football. You think you're finally going to kick that football, and it keeps elusively getting pulled away at the last second as a new distraction, a new request comes in. And paradoxically, it can be liberating to begin by accepting we're just going to never get it all done. We have a limited number of weeks in this life, so how might we learn to live them in a more life giving way. The singer-songwriter Carrie Newcomer says it this way in a poem titled, Because There Is Not Enough Time. Because There Is Not Enough Time. She writes, I used to think that because life is short, I should do more, be more, squeeze more into each and every day. She says, I'd walk around with a stick ruler with increasing numbers and the measure of fullness. But lately, she says, lately I've sensed a different response to this lack of time, to this finite number of weeks we have on this earth. She says, I felt in my bones the singular worth of each passing moment. Perhaps the goal is not to spend this day power skiing atop an ocean of multitasking. Maybe the idea is to swim slower sure to dive deeper and really, really look around. There is a difference, she concludes, between a life of width and a life of depth. I should add that I am also an advocate for systemic changes to also help make our lives more sustainable. Universal health care, universal child care, universal college and vocational training, a universal basic income. I've talked more about all of these in previous sermons that are available in our online archive. For now, 
on this first Sunday of this new year, I want to invite us to consider some of the changes we can make at the individual level as well. If you want the full details, I recommend Berkman's short, fascinating, and accessible book, 4,000 Weeks. But for our purposes, I'll limit myself to a New Year's Eve top 10 list of the highlights. Uh, these aren't in any particular order, but counting down from 10 seemed the more exciting way to do it. Number 10, in our list of how to make the most of our limited weeks on this earth. Get out of your comfort zone somehow in some way in your life that you feel interested and compelled to do so, get out of your comfort zone. On one end of the spectrum, we don't want to burn out. We don't want to be so outside of our comfort zone in every area that we're just doing too much, that we're uncomfortable everywhere. On the other end of the spectrum, we don't want to become listless. So in this new year, is there one or more areas of your life where you're just, you're feeling this itch, you're feeling this longing to grow, to stretch, to experiment? Maybe it's physically, or it could be emotionally, intellectually, financially, socially, vocationally, spiritually, whatever area, where do you feel led to try to get out of your comfort zone? Number nine, let go of impossible standards. Meaningful growth can be as simple as keeping one promise to yourself related to your goal each day. Just one promise or just one a week. It could be as simple as five more minutes of exercise than you have been doing. Reading just one chapter of a book or reading for five minutes or texting someone once a week to meet you for a coffee or to take a walk. Whatever feels right for you. Number eight. Accept the particularities of who you are as an individual. To use myself as an example, I should, for example, and did long time ago, you know, like playing football was a big deal in my high school, but I, I should give up all hope of being a professional football player or of playing football at all. I'm just too scrawny, right? That means accepting who I am as an individual. That isn't just in the cards for me. Another example is a few years ago, I actually spent a lot of time um, trying to become better at guitar. So I, you know, I signed up with a very good professional guitar player and practiced regularly 30 minutes, an hour a day. And I spent like a year doing that very regularly. But my, I was just, my curve of getting better, my learning curve was just so slow. It, it just got to be really um, demoralizing. In contrast, I found training for a marathon to be challenging, but um, vastly easier, more natural. I was really able to do that. It was difficult, but very doable for me. So I've just come to accept that there's some things I have a, more of an aptitude for than others. And that I, for better or worse, I peaked on guitar at age 16, and I've just come to accept that. As the wise story from the Jewish tradition relates about Rabbi Zuzia of Hanapoli, he said on his deathbed, in the coming world, they will not ask me, Rabbi, why were you not Moses? It was Moses' role to be who Moses was in Moses' time and place. He said, they will ask me, why were you not Zuzia? His call was only to be himself. And that's all any of us are asked to do. Nothing more than our unique best selves. I also think about the quote from the recovery community that beware of comparing your insides to other people's outsides. That can also be an important part of this. Number seven is one of the suggestions that I'm going to try to prioritize doing myself in this next year, and that is to adopt a fixed 
volume approach to productivity. Figure out how much I have time for, and if I'm gonna add anything else, that I've gotta make the hard choice of what's gonna come out to fit, you know, that we really have this fixed amount of time. I think Berkman's really right about that, that no matter what you do, whether you're president of the United States or whatever, no one gets any more time than anyone else. And so I, I think there's something to this fixed volume approach to product productivity and to really work on gently saying no and setting boundaries about being realistic about what one has time for. Number six is another one I may try, and that is to keep a done list. I'd be interested if any of you have ever tried that, keeping not just a to-do list, but a done list of what you've accomplished in a given day. Although I find it immensely satisfying. I keep an electronic calendar, and I, I love deleting things out of, that, out of that calendar. But the result at the end of the day is that a lot of stuff's gone, but a lot of stuff's still there. And so I can't see all the stuff that's gone. I can only see all the stuff that I haven't yet done. And it can be demoralizing. So I think it could be really interesting to, uh, and encouraging to spend just a moment or two at the end of each day savoring just a very quick bullet-pointed done list. Maybe that would help you as well. Number five, make your technology more boring. Our devices and apps are designed to get us hooked and to use them as frequently as possible. And Berkman suggests a fairly hardcore way of making them more boring. He actually has taken his like iPhone and put it in grayscale, so all the color is gone and it's just in black and white. Uh, I, I don't think I can handle that because I enjoy taking pictures too much and seeing other people's pictures, but I do think it's worth playing with the settings of your devices to turn off the notifications, use those focus sessions, or even I found it helps me if I just put my phone in the next room or across the room so I have to get up to get it, I, I use it much less frequently. Number four, pay more attention to every moment, however mundane. Pay attention to every moment. The invitation here is to sink more deeply into the life that you already have. Now, sometimes the grass really is greener if you're really in a toxic circumstance, but other times our invitation is really just, that's a lot of what spirituality is about, just sinking more deeply into the life you already have. We have this labyrinth on the ground in between the sanctuary and the chapel. It's always open unless something's happening, you know, some big event in the sanctuary or chapel. So maybe come here sometime on your own. Walk that labyrinth that has that universal pattern. There's only one way in and one way out. And just meditate a little bit through that walking meditation in the labyrinth of how do I sink more deeply into this moment and really notice the extraordinary nature of ordinary life. You can also find this through washing dishes and folding laundry are two of the chores I do most frequently and just kind of being really mindful, feeling your feet on the ground. That can be another way of, of, of appreciating the extraordinary in the ordinary. Number three, be continually curious in every relationship. Every human being in our lives is complex and always changing, maybe in ways that aren't obvious to us. And we can, sometimes if we know someone too long, we can come to, we think we know everything about them. So be continually curious in every relationship. Be open to being surprised by everyone in your life, no matter how well you know them. You may find your relationships evolving in unexpected ways as a result. You may find yourself genuinely surprised if you listen to what someone is actually saying instead of what you think they're going to say because you've known them so long. Number two, 
I really like this one. This is another one I'm, I'm going to try to do more. Act on generous impulses immediately, especially if it's something small and not that consequential for you. So this comes from the meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who was the focus of our 13-week meditation class that I recently led here on Tuesday nights. For many years, Goldstein has practiced the habit of following through whenever a small act of kindness occurs to him, just kind of overcoming inertia and just do it, especially if it's something that might take just a minute or isn't that impactful. So if you feel that inner prompting to support something, to make a donation, to give someone money, to check in on a friend, or maybe just to send a quick email or text or make a phone call to uh, encourage someone to say, you know, I really appreciated this thing you did or was just thinking about you. He said, just go ahead and do it. It can really create this virtuous cycle in the world of helping things move from strength to strength instead of a vicious cycle that takes us from uh, cruelty to cruelty. So act on generous impulses immediately. And number one, practice doing nothing. As you sometimes hear in meditation circles, don't always be doing something. Don't just do something. Sit there. Carve out more unstructured downtime in your life, even if you have to put it on the calendar, even if you have to put on the calendar unstructured downtime, if that's the only way you can get to it. It's really what, what I need to do. Try that. Practice doing nothing in this new year. And so, here at the beginning of 2022, are there one or more items in that top 10 list that I just went through that really just resonated with you, that really hit home? Oh, let me try that one. Don't feel like you need to do all 10. Is there one or two? Or maybe they reminded you of something else that you want to try in 2022, that you want to like stick a post-it note on your mirror to remind you of, or whatever would help you get it done. What do you want to experiment in this new year to make it more worthwhile, uh, as the motto of the Traveling Symphony reminds us, because survival is insufficient? So in this new year, what do you feel called to move toward with a greater level of commitment to get out of your comfort zone? Or where are you, what are you feeling led to let go of? What has been a routine distraction or detriment to you in the past year in 2021? To begin embodying a response to these actions, you can do this right now if you want, but you can also do it in the coming sometime later this day or in the week to come. It's our annual UU ritual of fire communion. Reflecting on how 2021 went for you, is there a person, is there a place, is there a habit that has consistently been a hindrance to your well-being? Is there something or someone that you feel called to let go of or to say no to or to put a boundary around in this new year? What has been life negating, a hindrance to your well-being, leaving you regularly feeling drained of energy, alienated, resentful? Either now or later in this week, I invite you to just find a piece of paper and write it down and then uh, set an intention to, to let go of this thing, this person, place, or thing. Hold that in your paper and you can either light it on fire, you can tear it up, you can bury it. So you can light a candle and then take a piece of paper and this is flash paper and then let it go. Now, while burning a slip of paper, that doesn't necessarily mean that the process of letting go is complete. But I invite you to see it as one step in the process of saying no to what in your life has been life negating. 
that you want to let go of. And you can also light a votive candle to symbolize something that you want to say yes to. You could even take a candle, a bigger candle, and like write on it something that you're, or get a dish that you decorate that has a word or a symbol that represents what you want to affirm or say yes to. And maybe light that candle to, to remind you of that. Something that you want, you know, a person, place, or habit that you want to do more of, affirm, or say yes to in this new year that has regularly left you feeling energized and connected and grateful and more fully alive. So what do you want more of and less of in this new year? What intentions do you want to set? As we continue to discern how you feel led to live into this new year, let's listen together to our musical response. Blessing to the world.